0: Well, as we join together with our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We were in the first chapter of Acts last week. This week we'll be in the second chapter. As you find that, I'll just remind you that over these recent weeks, we've been looking at a series of three events that are central to our faith and to the ministry of the church. All three are events that happened in the past. First we looked at the resurrection and then last week we looked at the ascension and we said that both of those events have profound implications for our future and where it is we believe the church is going and where the world is going. Today we look at the third event which kind of forms the bookend and while it too is an event that happened in the past it has profound implications for the present because what happened at Pentecost empowers and informs how we live here and now as we anticipate what is still yet to come by the power of the resurrection. So with that as our background, let me ask you to listen and join together as we read these words from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, how are those New Year's resolutions coming? You remember those, right? I see some shaking of heads. Back around the first of the year, some of us made some promises to ourselves that we were going to do something different this year. Maybe this would be the year when we'd finally lose that weight and get in shape. Or this would be the year when we'd finally get around to cleaning out the basement and hauling stuff off to Goodwill. Maybe this year we'd change our schedule around and spend more time with our family. Maybe this year, finally, we would take seriously the need to grow and improve our prayer life something, anything that would move us to a better place. Well, that was January. It's now June. We're about halfway through the year, so I figured it'd be good to take a moment and kind of check in with each other, kind of see how we're doing. We're all about halfway to meeting those goals, right? Well, I gather from the silence the answer is no, and I get it. I understand. For most of us, those New Year's resolutions are long since forgotten, And I don't say that to invoke feelings of guilt. After all, if you were to come to my house, you'd find my basement's more cluttered now than it was then. I say it to point out the fickle nature of our human condition. Regardless of what we say we want and intend to do, most of us don't do it most of the time. We don't seem to be able to follow through on our own desires. If it makes you feel any better, the Bible acknowledges this. Even a spiritual giant like the Apostle Paul had to acknowledge that his will was broken and that by his own effort he couldn't do the things he most wanted to do. Turn to Romans chapter 7 verse 15. You'll hear Paul writing these words. He says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate I do, sound familiar? The bad habits, the unmet goals, the unfulfilled promises, the ones we make to ourselves and to others, these are just part of our fallen nature as human beings. Which leaves us with both a problem and a mystery. Here's the problem. The church is made up of folk like us. People who are inconsistent. People who are unfaithful. People who don't always follow through on what we said we would do. Folks like you and me. I saw this wonderful marquee sign in front of a church one day. I had to slow down to make sure I understood it. It read, This church is not full of hypocrites. There's still room for you too. I love that. There's our problem. The church is made up of folks like us. But here's the mystery. In spite of that fact, the church has survived for over 2,000 years. It's not only survived, it's thrived. We said a couple of weeks ago when we were studying the resurrection that one of the most remarkable social revolutions in human history is the spread and growth of the Christian church. The church throughout history has spread like wildfire all across the known world, often in the face of great opposition to the extent that the church now has a presence on every continent and in almost every country. Now, clearly, there are still many people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus. I am not implying that everyone has been reached. But the church now has a presence, at least, almost anywhere you go. Now, how is that possible? How could it be that an institution that's made up of folk like us can do so well in the face of such great odds? Well, the answer to that question lies in the story that we just read. It is the story of Pentecost. Now, for those of us who have heard this story before, we readily associate the word Pentecost with the bizarre events that we just read about. And and we will get to that in a moment. But it helps to first understand the background of this day. Because long before Pentecost was a Christian celebration, it was a Jewish celebration. Pentecost, you see, was one of seven festivals that the Jews were commanded to observe throughout the year. For those who are keeping score at home, the seven festivals are these. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and those two go together. The Feast of Firstfruits the Feast of Weeks, the Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now Passover came first. Passover was the critical event because it was the moment in which God led His people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. And so Passover became day one of their year. And everything else got labeled or timed according to where it fell in relation to Passover and that's true for what we celebrate today. Because according to the book of Leviticus, the festival of weeks, as it was called then, was to be celebrated 50 days after the Sabbath closest to Passover. Seven weeks plus one day, the festival of weeks, 50 days. Now, Though because of where it fell in the year, it was early spring or late spring rather. And so, so Pentecost became known as an agricultural festival. There was actually an early barley crop that would be coming in about that time every year. And it was a way of celebrating the abundance that God's people enjoyed. This group of people who had their roots as nomads wandering in the wilderness for 40 years was now able to celebrate the fact that because God had established them in their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey as the scriptures put it, they could celebrate the abundance that God was providing for them. But even more important than that, This festival, this celebration was meant to mark the giving of the Torah or the law. See, tradition says that it was 50 days after the people fled Egypt that God called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai and gave him the law. And so this festival marked the establishment of God's covenant with His people Israel. Now in the Hebrew of the Old Testament this festival was called Shavuot but in Greek of the New Testament it became known as Pentecost which is the Greek word for 50 Now it's helpful to know that background because it helps to set the scene that we find when we come to Acts chapter 2. Because of the significance of this day and what it meant in the history of God's people, it was one of those occasions when Jews from all over the world would come back to Jerusalem, back to the homeland. You see, ever since the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C., Jews had been scattered throughout the known world. Israel was always their home, but they had a presence basically everywhere you went throughout the Roman Empire. But during Pentecost, for a few short days, that would change, and many people would stream back home. And the population of Jerusalem would swell to 2 three even four times its normal size as Jewish people from all over the world and from all sorts of cultures would rub shoulders with one another in the crowded streets. Well, On this particular day this particular year's celebration of Pentecost included amongst that very large cosmopolitan crowd of people was this band of Jesus followers It's now been about 50 days since Jesus rose from the dead. It's been roughly 10 days since Jesus ascended back into heaven. And these followers are wondering what's supposed to happen next. Now if you remember last week, if you were with us, and we read in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he gives his followers a set of instructions. He tells them that they are supposed to wait in Jerusalem until, quote, the Holy Spirit came. And he said when that happened, they would receive a unique kind of power that would come upon them from somewhere beyond them. Now that's all he said. He didn't describe what that would look like, what it would feel like, how they would know it, what it would accomplish. So you can imagine that they had all sorts of questions running through their heads over these last ten days, wondering what in the world Jesus was talking about. Well, that question, assuming they're asking it, gets answered in a dramatic fashion in the events that we just read about. Luke tells us that around 9 o'clock in the morning on that Sunday, which is roughly the same hour we're gathering now, the most amazing thing happened. Luke describes it with two elements. First, he said there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind that swept through the room. Now, please note that he described this as, quote, a wind from heaven. Wind is a vitally important piece of the story here. Because in the Greek language, as well as in the Hebrew language, the same word is used to translate both wind and breath. It's Luke's way of telling us that this isn't just any wind. This wind is the very breath of God that is being breathed on the disciples in a new and unexpected way. This wind is the power and the presence of God that's coming from beyond them and interrupting their unsuspecting lives. The other element that he uses to describe the event is fire. More specifically, Luke says that what looked like tongues of fire danced through the room and came to rest upon each one of them. In the Old Testament, fire is a symbol and a sign of the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 3, for example, when God called Moses, he spoke to him through a bush that was on fire In Exodus 19, when God calls Moses up to the the top of Mount Sinai to give him the law, we are told that fire and smoke descended from heaven and enshrouded the top of the mountain. In Exodus chapter 30, The priests of Israel are instructed to keep a smoldering fire always burning night and day continuously on the altar of incense that stood in front of the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant sat and was believed to be the physical dwelling place of God. So in other words, in the Old Testament fire marked those times and places where heaven and earth overlapped. Fire symbolized those places and times where God himself intersected the otherwise ordinary affairs of human life. God is not a distant and remote God, a God rather who comes to dwell among his people. That is exactly what's happening in this room on the day of Pentecost as fire and wind sweep through the room, signaling to these people that the power of God has now come upon them in a way they had not expected. This bizarre and miraculous moment is not the result of some sort of internal, private experience these believers were having. This was not the result of some excited psychological state that they've whipped in themselves up into. As Peter will later point out when he stands up to preach the first sermon in the history of the Christian church, this was not the result of some intoxication or some other altered state of consciousness. People in this room were not doing anything to make this happen. This was nothing less than the very presence and the power of God that was coming from beyond them to rest upon them and to dwell within them. In that room, on that Pentecost, God descended from heaven to invade the lives of these otherwise ordinary people. which explains what happens next. We know from a comment that gets made a little bit later in the story that these men and women were mostly from Galilee. That's a rural area to the northern part of Israel, a place that's not exactly known to be a center of intellectual activity and economic power. Today we would say these were just ordinary country folk with no special training it would be kind of like saying they were all from travel no offense to those like me who live there yet in spite of their ordinary country status they suddenly begin to speak in languages they've never spoken before parthian latin egyptian arabic strange exotic languages that you don't just accidentally stumble into and yet these ordinary folk begin to speak them fluently it just so happened that these strange new languages that were erupting from their lips were the very same languages that were the mother tongues of the very international crowd that's gathered outside that room The end result was that people from all points on the compass got to hear the deeds of God being expressed in their own language. People that day heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed in a way that they could hear and that they could understand. By His power, God found a way to overcome the cultural and language barriers that would have otherwise kept these people apart. And in that one day, in that one instant, the gospel of Jesus Christ went out to people from all points of the known world. By the end of Acts chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people heard the gospel, and responded to it that very day. Which means that in a single moment, the church of Jesus Christ suddenly became an international movement. Prior to this, it was a small following of a handful of Galileans confined to one little forgotten corner of the Roman Empire. But it has now begun to spread to the farthest reaches of the world. brings us back to that question we asked a moment ago, how can an institution made up of a bunch of knuckleheads like you and me, how can it thrive and how can it grow and how can it spread to every part of the known world even in the face of hostilities and obstacles? The answer is found in what happened on Pentecost. God sent His Holy Spirit into the church to empower the church to do what the church by its own power could never do. The church succeeds because when it is all said and done, the church is not operating under her own power. There is a power that comes from beyond us that propels the ministry of the church forward. And don't think for a moment that it was only some isolated one-time event that happened way back then. After the wind and the fire had died down and the speaking in strange languages had faded, the Apostle Peter got up and preached. Keep in mind, this is the same Peter who clammed up and wouldn't say a word the night Jesus was crucified except for I don't know him. And now he stands up and preaches a bold sermon, the first sermon in the recorded history of the church. And like any good preacher, he had a scripture text to work from, and his text that day was the prophet Joel. And quoting from Joel, Peter said that the events that had just unfolded before them was the actual fulfillment of a promise. It was the promise that a day was coming when God would pour out His Spirit on all people see, prior to this moment, the giving of the Spirit was an occasional event that happened to occasional people for specific occasions. We can read of numerous instances in the Old Testament in which God would send His Spirit upon a person in a certain moment to accomplish a specific task. But in those days, the Spirit was not readily available to just anybody anywhere. Now according to Peter, all of that has changed. Because what Joel had prophesied long ago was now coming true right before their eyes. God said, Peter said rather that God had poured out His Holy Spirit on all people. Not on a select few. Not on a special class of spiritual elite. Not on the ordained clergy or the professional theologians. But upon all God's people. That means you. And that means me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then God has placed His Holy Spirit in you. God's earthly dwelling is no longer in a building in some specific location. God's earthly dwelling is not in something we call a church building. We talk about going to church, but that's really a misstatement. Because the church isn't the building, the church is the people. It's the people in whom God dwells. God's earthly habitation is inside the lives of those who have named Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. God's dwelling is us. Which means that the same power that was available to those followers on that first day of Christian Pentecost is still available to us. It may not always happen in the same dramatic fashion. But that's okay because at the end of the day it's not about the experience. It's what the experience enables And what it enables is that you and I are not left to fend for ourselves and we do not have to rely only on our own limited resources. Now, let's be very clear. We are absolutely expected to bring our best effort and our best resources to the work of the kingdom The promise of Pentecost is not an excuse for us to be lazy or indifferent about the ministry God has given us to accomplish. When I was in seminary, one of the preaching professors said, when it comes to preaching, rely on the Holy Spirit, just don't rely on Him too much, which is a way of saying you still have to do your homework, you still have to be prepared, it is not an excuse to be lazy or apathetic. If God wanted to, he could go about the work of his kingdom without ever involving us. But he's not chosen to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul tells us that we are co-workers in God's service. Think about that for a moment. We are working alongside God in his work to redeem the world. Romans 12 says that we should offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice in a way that pleases God. Now that phrase seems counterintuitive because in the Old Testament a sacrifice was dead. We're supposed to be alive. Which means that our very lives as they are lived out are offered up to God. And so when it comes to serving Him there is no room for mediocrity. We have something we say to one another among staff sometimes. It's It's not very pithy or or quotable, but but we like to say that the one thing we never want to hear anybody say as they're leaving something here at Bonsack is, well, that was pretty good for a church. That's pretty good for a church. You know, there's an assumption, an expectation that when you go to something at church, it's going to be of lesser quality than what you find in the world, because it's just church. Who cares? We don't ever want to hear that said here. Everything we do needs to be done well and done right. We ought to bring our absolute best to the ministry of the kingdom. But the simple truth is that no matter what we bring and no matter what we do, what we do will never be by itself enough to overcome the power of sin and death that still holds the world in its grip. And so if our efforts, if our ministries are ever going to meet with success or or effectiveness, then God is going to have to take what we bring to offer and do something with it that's greater than what we could accomplish on our own. Good news is, He does. Because of Pentecost, we have a promise that God is at work among us. Not because we've earned it, or achieved it, or proved ourselves worthy of it, but because God has something He's trying to accomplish in the world, and for reasons that defy all human logic, He's chosen us as the vessels through whom to do it. And so when we pour ourselves into the things that matter to God, when our desires line up with his desires, when our purposes pursue his purposes, we have the promise that we will not be doing it in our own power. He will take what we bring, incomplete as it may be, and he will do with it things that we could never accomplish. And that's really good to know. Because just like on that day of Pentecost long ago, there are some really big barriers we've still got to overcome. Think about what God accomplished on that Pentecost day. He leapt over cultural barriers and language barriers and political barriers. He created an international movement empowered by the risen Jesus. We face some of those same challenges today in case you haven't noticed culturally speaking there is a clash going on around us right now and I'm not just talking about the rise of multiculturalism we've always lived in a multicultural world some of us may have been blind to it for many decades but it's always been a diverse place. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the collision of cultural worldviews that's playing out all around us as people with radically different visions of reality battle it out with one another. How is the church going to thrive in that kind of environment? A world in which people no longer share some of the underlying assumptions that we take for granted linguistically we don't have to travel far beyond our own neighborhood to realize the challenges we face and I am not talking about the different tongues that people around us speak I'm talking about the fact that the world around us doesn't speak the language of the Christian faith in a way that it once did you know we in the church have a certain way of talking to one another there's a vocabulary that we use, a set of terms that we throw around. And there was a day and a time in which we assumed, rightly or wrongly, that the world around us understood those words and spoke that vocabulary. But they don't anymore. The world around us increasingly speaks the language of secularism. So, How are we going to communicate the gospel to the people beyond our walls in terms they can understand? Politically, our world, our country, for that matter, even our own neighborhoods often feel about as divided as they ever have. Disagreements over even the smallest matters of policy quickly devolve into all-out wars over ideology. And more and more we are finding ways to surround ourselves only with people who already agree with us on every point, And we cut ourselves off from meaningful conversation from everybody else. You know, our strategic plan calls us to know one another, both in the church and outside the church, to seek to build meaningful relationships with others in a world that would rather keep us strangers to each other. But in a world of mistrust and miscommunication, how is that going to happen? How do we build meaningful relationships with people who we don't even know? Well, what I can tell you is this. If it's up to us to figure out the answers to all those questions, well, our chances aren't real good. But the good news is it is not. Because Pentecost tells us that God is still in the business of calling the world back to Him. And as crazy as it may sound, He still wants to use us to make that happen. I believe the wind of Pentecost is still blowing and the fire of Pentecost is still burning and that God is still ready to take what we have to offer and use it to turn the Roanoke Valley and the world beyond upside down for His kingdom. There are hearts God still wants to soften. There are minds God still wants to open. There are marriages God still wants to reconcile. There are addictions God still wants to break. There are broken spirits God still wants to heal. There are communities God still wants to restore. And most of all, there are lost souls God still wants to save. He did it then and He is ready to do it now. The question is, are we? Let's pray together. Father God, we marvel at the fact that you have called the likes of us into your kingdom. And we celebrate the fact that when we were still far from you, when we were still enemies of you, when we were still hostile to you, you pursued us in Jesus Christ. And by the power of His grace, you called us back to you. Remind us again that you still desire to do that yet more. That the people beyond our walls are still the objects of your deep love. And that you still want to use us to fulfill your purposes in your world. And so we pray most of all this morning, God, that you would simply break us. Break us of anything that prevents your power from moving through us. Break us of our stubbornness. Break us of our hard-heartedness. Break us of our closed-mindedness. Break us of our rebellion against you and against one another. And make us a people ready to receive your Pentecostal power. Through us, you can do it again. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Our final hymn is a prayer that God would descend upon our hearts by the power of His Spirit. He's ready to do that, but but He won't override the ability to stop that from happening by staying in a place of hardness to Him. My prayer is that in these closing moments, we will take a moment to allow God to work through us in that if if you've never been open to receiving jesus christ that's the first step and i would just invite you to come forward if that's where you are but but my guess is that all of us are building walls in some way against the movement of god's spirit in some relationship in some pattern of living in some way of thinking that we know needs to change whatever it is i pray that in these moments god's spirit would break us and move let's stand and worship him together